Good afternoon. Good afternoon, everyone. And uh, thank you all for taking the time to uh, join this Finance Malta webinar, which I am happy to say has attracted over 260 participants. Thank you. Thank you for your interest. Today's uh, discussion title states, Compliance remains high on Malta's agenda. I actually dare say that compliance remains high on every agenda. We know that it plays a very important role in today's corporate world. We know that the role of compliance, MLROs, has become one of the most important functions in regulated businesses today. Paul McNulty, a former US Deputy Attorney General, once said, if you think compliance is expensive, try non-compliance. So that's food for thought. And that's why we are very happy to have with us this afternoon Fran Moisa and Charles Kassar, who will also discuss the evolving role of compliance, MLROs, in a local and international context. Fran is the founder of FM Search, a boutique recruitment, headhunting, and talent advisory firm with over 12 years experience in both London and Malta. Fran has assisted many international businesses with recruitment and staff retention in highly competitive markets. Charles is the founder of Shoulder Compliance, an anti-financial crime consultancy focusing on AML CFT, sanctions and anti-market abuse. Charles has many years of experience leading the compliance function of a European systematically important institution, as well as a commercial lawyer and heading the legal and compliance departments of a fintech bank. We'd also like to hear from you, the delegates, your opinions, your thoughts. So feel free to use the chat function on your screens to share these thoughts. Don't worry, only the panelists will be able to see your chat or comment. So, Fran, Charles, over to you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ivan, for the kind introduction. And thank you, everyone, for joining us uh, today. Uh, Charles, lovely to be speaking with you again um, on a still very important subject and an ever-evolving subject, which is AML compliance and the importance that it carries both locally, but as well as at, um, um, at an EU and, of course, global level as well. And um, the regulatory environment continues to evolve and it has evolved beyond recognition throughout the years. And what is the next step on the horizon that is facing us at the moment is the single AML rulebook. Um, so what changes can we expect when this single uh, rulebook is, is adopted and implemented throughout the EU member states? Okay, so I, I think the single rulebook for AML is probably going to be the next major milestone in the evolution of the AML CFT framework. Just by way of background, we are currently still more or less living in the AML 4 world, in the world of the Ford Directive. Yes, there has been a fifth AML directive and some other legislative developments, but, but the, the, the core of the current framework is the fourth AML directive, and that brought about a number of important changes. I think most of all, the emphasis on transparency of beneficial ownership and the emphasis on the risk-based approach. 
Now we're, we're approaching the next big milestone, which is what we're calling the Unified Directive or the, or the, single, or the single rule book, right? And I, I guess the single rule book really is, uh, well, in my head, it's two things, right? On the one hand, there is a, a, a drive to achieve far greater levels of harmonization across, across the European Union in terms of the substance of, of the rule set. And, and secondly, there is a drive towards ensuring that there is pan-European supervision. And I think this, this second one is probably the most visible and dramatic change that we're going to observe. Because effectively, we're going to see the introduction of an AML authority, the AMLA or AMLA, right? Which is going to be a sort of regulator's regulator, kind of like an ECB for AML related for AML related matters. And that's going to be a massive change. Because although you know we've had an AML CFT framework now for a couple of decades or so in, in, in some shape, in some shape or form, right? But that has always been implemented by domestic regulators, by domestic legislators. And very importantly, it's always been enforced by domestic regulators and domestic legislators and always been interpreted in a domestic way. So what that means is that although we have a European level directive in one form or the other, um, there's been a lot of fragmentation in terms of the interpretation of those rules. And there's also been a lot of difference in terms of you know, enforcement expectations and, and, and structures. So we're going to have an AMLA, a European level authority, which is going to act as a regulator's regulator. And uh, although many subject persons will not necessarily have a direct interaction with the AMLA, it will be something I believe which people will feel the impact of, you know, at least, at least indirectly. Thank you, thank you, Charles, for, uh, for for the summary. And one of the other areas that was mentioned there was with regards to the increased scope of obliged entities um, that would fall under the um, AML um, CFT rules or, or the sixth directive that is being proposed as well. And this comes at the same time. So we have an increased scope and greater harmonization of the legislation across the EU states with a far greater remit than we've had to date, whilst at the same time we have the, you know, AMLA or the, you know, let's call it the regulator of the regulator, yeah. sort of overarching at a local level. How can Malta as a small jurisdiction cope with this upcoming changes as well? Okay, so let's let's uh, let's unpack that because I think there's there's almost like three questions in there. So let's, let's <laughs> three questions into into one. Let's try to so that's very efficient. So you know, um, <laughs> so let's try to unpack this. So I think number one, we probably need to speak a little bit more about the AMLA, right? So the AMLA is going to be I like to call it a regulator's regulator because the 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 let's say primary focus of the AMLA is going to be top level standard setting ensuring coordination between regulators and making sure that regulators adhere to the standards that they are supposed to adhere to. This is the main focus on the AMLA. It is clearly motivated by, let's say, a political desire to ensure that all regulators 
are pulling on the same rope and in the same way and cooperating with each other and that we don't have regulators that are stricter than others or that implement things differently to, the, to, to one another. So that is the main thrust of it. Now, that's not going to be the end of it because the, the AMLA will also, uh, at least under the, the form of the current proposals, right, will also have the form, the ability to regulate directly the entities which are considered riskiest within a, a jurisdiction, right? So it will regulate certain entities directly. And if it is, let's say, somehow dissatisfied with the quality of supervision that any particular regulator is exercising, they will be able to sort of have step-in rights where they actually intervene directly or guide the local regulator directly in terms of what needs to be what needs to be done now in practice what that means is that life might change quite dramatically for a few firms which are directly captured by the amla um, as you as you uh, as, as ivan said during my introduction you know in a previous life i was uh, head of compliance of a systemically important institution in malta that means direct regulation by the ecb direct regulation by ecb is something to be taken very seriously, it is a very high uh, and, and uh, exigent level of, of, of regulation. And uh, um, let, 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 let's put it this way, you know, they, they were very well resourced, very on the ball, and the, we, we definitely felt the impact of that level of regulation. Also bearing in mind that for Maltese entities, uh, you know, something which everyone should remember is, unfortunately, sometimes the European level authorities don't necessarily implement proportionality principles very well. So we may have, in our country at least, institutions which by a European standard are relatively small, which are faced by the challenge of direct top European level regulation, which is, which is not something to be taken, taken lightly. Now, other smaller institutions will not be subject to direct um, supervision by, by the AMLA, but I think at the end of the day, the, the, they will feel the indirect impact of the existence of a sort of supranational regulator, which is always um, you know, ensuring that the local domestic authorities are um, uh, performing all of their obligations to the very, very highest, uh, very highest standards. So I think that's that's the that's the AMLA bit of the question, and then there's the other bit of the question, which I think is the the continuing expansion of the scope of the AML directives. Now, um, this is basically um, it's become routine pretty much that with every new directive we have an expansion in the number of areas which are actually captured. By, by the scope of the AML regime. We're going to see that, we're going to see that again um, among the, the new market players that are going to be captured in the, in the, within scope of the directives, we're going to have um, crowdfunding service providers. We're going to have uh, mortgage or credit intermediaries, which are going to be captured as well. We're going to, we're going to see the capture of uh, um, um, citizenship by investment agencies to the extent that they deal with non-EU citizens. And I think we're also going to see the, the full capture of the remaining parts of the uh, cryptocurrency um, service providers, cryptocurrency service providers markets. Previously, the directives would only capture you if, you if you, the transactions you are dealing with had a fiat leg to them. Um, I believe now those distinctions are going to fall, to, to fall away and the, the, the current drafts would capture effectively all cryptocurrency or virtual currency service, service providers. 
So, you know, we're going to see another not notable expansion in the remit of the, of, of, the, uh, of the directives, right? And obviously, if you're captured by that expansion, then in that case, yes, your life is probably going to change quite, quite dramatically. Although, to be fair, some of these industries have already been getting ahead of things and have already been kind of tooling themselves up to an AML4 standard more or less, but you know, it's always different when you're actually captured directly by the rule. So that's the second part of the question, right? <laughs> correct, correct. It was kind of like maybe sort of how do we deal with all of this, right? Exactly. So how, how does this, how will this um, impact and affect uh, multi-based um, entities I'm not going to say the second part of the question, so I don't do a triple question into <laughs> one again. So I was thinking to just so how how will this um, impact uh, Maltese obliged entities within the sectors and the new one captured by the regulation, especially when we talk about uh, cryptocurrency. So one of the aspects of the regulation relates to you know the the, the removal completely of the anonymous uh, e-wallet accounts, for example, yeah. when it comes to uh, crypto transactions. And Malta has you know focused um, in the last couple of years on um, um, creating an ecosystem to attract such businesses as well. And as you've rightly pointed, um, you know, smaller operator when it comes to EU regulations doesn't always take into account or, you know, can apply across the board the principle of proportionality, which for an island like, like Malta is incredibly um, important. So how will this, you know, in your opinion? Yes, I mean, look, a lot, a lot of this depends on where you stand in the market and where you are in the market. So I, I think for a lot of firms, this new set of, you know, this, this new regime, is it necessarily going to completely, um, you know, is it necessarily going to completely rock their world, right? Is it necessarily going to completely turn everything upside down, which is quite different to what we saw with the fourth AML directive. So with the fourth AML directive, we saw very extensive, uh, we saw changes that very extensively impacted, you know, the day-to-day -day life of most subject persons. You know, before you didn't need to put together a business risk assessment, now you need to. Um, before you, you, you know, there was much less emphasis on, a, on the customer risk assessment, now customer risk assessment became, an obligatory part of the process and a very important part of the process, right? So the AML4 directive had very direct impact on the life of many subject persons. The new package is, I think, going to have a more modest impact for, a more modest direct impact for many subject persons. Having said that, you know, if you are within one of the industries which previously was not captured within the scope of AML um, regulation, AML directives, and now you are, obviously now you have uh, a, a fairly uh, mature and sophisticated rule book, which you now have to learn how to contend with, right? So for those people, there's probably going to be a, a big change, right? And if you are one of the entities which is going to be directly regulated um, under AMLA supervision, then again, you know, that's going to be a whole new set of people to get used to, a whole new um, way of doing things to get used to. So for those people, it's going to be, again, more challenging. 
to be clear, this is not all, you know, there's swings and roundabouts over here. I think there's a couple of, of important positives, which we need to note, which is that we, we will hopefully enjoy uh, far clearer and far more mature and far more harmonized rule set across the European Union. So we should have far fewer of those situations where one jurisdiction approaches, I don't know, customer due diligence in a certain way, and another jurisdiction adopts markedly, markedly different standards. And this is a product of the design of the new legislation. Effectively, you know, in the past, in previous, in the in the in the past, we've we've always had a European directive, right? And directives obviously need to be transposed into local legislation, and the process of transposing always creates uh, frictions and differences from one jurisdiction to the other. Now we're moving to a model which is kind of similar to what the bankers are used to. So the bankers are by now used to having uh, like a capital requirements directive, the capital requirements regulation side by side with it, right? So we're going to have something like that for AML. We're going to have a directive which is going to, you know, basically stipulate all of the high level stuff about having an FIU and, and things like that. And accompanying it, we're going to have regulations and the regulations are going to provide direct um, instruction about how to do things like perform a CDD, for example. And everyone is going to be subject to the same regulation across Europe, right? And that is hopefully going to iron out some of these uh, creases that emerge as, as the different regulators implement different regulations. And if you're a pan-European business, like if, you, if you're a business coming to Malta, if you're setting up your business in Malta and you want to do pan-European business, you now have pretty a pretty strong message that the, the standards and procedures that you apply in Malta will pretty much be applicable in a very even and frictionless way, we hope, throughout the rest of the continent. So there are advantages over here. It's, it's not just you know, more regulatory burden. It's hopefully also having less friction within the market as well. And a clearer direction, as you've mentioned, when it comes to the onboarding, registration and management of different customer profiles, because what happened at, at a point in time was the, um, the very heavy de-risking exercise, you know, in the banking sector, for example, as we were talking about the, the banking side and how, how they have been used by the ECB regulations and, and uh, you know, liquidity ratios, capital. Uh, limits and so on and so forth and with this it, it could be like you said an advantage that it will create uh, for a better word a level playing field across different um, EU states when it comes to the um, um, transparency and methodology used by, by the regulators and the obliged entities. Yeah, I, mean, I think everyone mm -hmm. of the practitioners over here will have the experience of because this comes up with our clients all the time. All my clients come to me and they always ask me the same question. Why, why do I have to request all of these documents? Why do I have to go through all of these procedures, which nobody else on the planet needs to go through, which is bunk, you know, because the reality is what's happening is we have however many regulators in Europe, everyone has his own slightly different way of doing things, but it's not that uh, you're going overboard and nobody else is doing the same, right? And now what we're going to have hopefully is a situation where when you're doing the onboarding and, and you have these kinds of discussions, everyone can point to the, the exact same regulation which applies in the exact same way throughout Europe and say provision XYZ, 
um, uh, indicates that the following should be done. This is the same wherever you go. So there shouldn't be uh, any more of these debates. We hope, although I'm sure that somehow we will find a way to have these debates once again. <laughs> Oh no! Absolutely, absolutely. I'm sure this this will not uh, not go away, and and customers will still be quite defensive, you know. Or or or, or sometimes it's, it's a lot a lot of the times I found is the case of, of curiosity, you know, because we've been used in a certain way. So then when change does occur, it is natural that one will sort of raise question and will need that period of time to adapt themselves. Um, we've got a question here, uh, Charles, I'm going to read it uh, to you. I mean, two questions, but I will start with the one that is most closely tied to, to the point of the, of the discussion now, is that there are currently different standards for non-face-to-face uh, -face online businesses in various EU markets. Will there be harmonization of these sectors once AMLA is in place? The person that asked the question, I assume you're referring to onboarding of customers in a non online. Yes, I yes, I believe so. Um, one thing to but one good thing which we have in Malta is I think in Malta we've had a regulator uh, in the form of the FI that has been uh, over time persuaded of the usefulness of non-face-to-face onboarding channels and has issued guidance in this respect. I believe we're also going to get some clarity in, in terms of uh, European level when it comes to non-face-to-face processes. The AMLA has been tasked with the delivery, not, not just of you know, coordination between the authorities, but also of regulatory technical, technical standards, which will hopefully address these things. So you know, hold tight and hopefully we will have this. One thing which I do need to highlight over here, however, uh, is that remember everything that we're talking about is in proposal stage. Um, there's a two to three year time horizon for, for everything that we are talking about. Um, you know, the, the European process can be quite lengthy and there may be revisions in the future. So, you know, we'll, we'll need to see in what, in what the detail of what eventually comes out of this process. But the answer is hope, hopefully yes, but you know, let's, let's, let's wait and see. Exactly. I mean, there is still there is still some time uh, ahead, you know, from from the latest discussions at the EU level, the um, AMLA authority would be up, up and running, let's say, you know, from 2024, but it wouldn't have necessarily immediate scope from an inform for a, from an enforcement point of view. So that gives EU jurisdictions a lot of time to, uh, you know, have discussions like we're having today um, and really understand what these changes can mean and what the proportionality is for, for each stage and how firms can better prepare and how professionals as well can better prepare themselves so that if, if it does reach um, this, this shape and form, um, eventually we are not completely caught by, by surprise. Um, there is another question related to the um, let's say competitiveness in Malta um, and whether so the introduction of the new regulations and the increased regulatory supervision will affect Malta's affect probably is not the right word, but they say you know will will um, affect because I can't think of any other uh, Malta's uh, edge as a lower cost option when accessing the uh, European market. Actually, I I think I think that. If anything, the, the single rule book will enhance the attractiveness of the jurisdiction. 
I don't think it will take away from the attractiveness of the jurisdiction. And uh, let, 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 you know, let's set the scene. Everyone knows that Malta was grey listed by the FATF. We spent a year on the grey list. There was a process which we undertook. I think there was a tremendous effort on the part of authorities, regulators and stakeholders in order to make sure that standards were duly improved. And I think a lot of improvement were, was indeed registered. Of course, this is an ongoing battle and it's never really done, but a lot of improvement indeed was registered. So I think Malta, in terms of, let's say, the procedural side and the structural side has actually registered a lot of improvement. And in a way, a lot of the, uh, a lot of, a lot of the pain has been absorbed already. Now we've taken it in our stride and it's become part of our new normal. So actually having a European level regulation that harmonizes these expectations across the board makes sure that we are uh, competing on a level playing field where everyone is at the level which we have now achieved, right? And, and also I think it, a good thing is uh, it, this development will hopefully take away a lot of the ambiguity from, you know, from the, dif from the different jurisdictional interpretations, right? And allow the jurisdiction to compete based on substantive matters rather than on whatever ambiguities could arise between one jurisdiction and the other. So actually my view is not only does Malta not lose um, its competitive edge as a result of this, but if anything, I think Malta gains from there being a more frictionless market also in the context of AML CFT. Definitely, I think we're, we're in a sentiment that, that Travis, it is, uh, you know, great, great progress has been made to date, and this would just um, help to really put Malta on the map alongside other jurisdictions. And then when we look at, at the cost perspective, which is one of the, let's say, concern points raised, raised in the question, you know, with the um, the continuous development, as we said at the beginning, of the regulatory regime, but not only on the AML CFT front, you know, we've got on the ICT front, on the technology front, and in so many other areas, is that essentially from, um, let's say, you know, being highly, you know, sort of tight with one's investment into a business, whether that goes towards AML, CFT, uh, tech, or, or any other matter, is, is, is long time gone because we are heading towards increased um, harmonization. We are heading towards more uh, uniform, let's say, onboarding processes and, and um, expectations as well from a regulatory, but also from a consumer point of view. And I think this is something we sometimes forget as professionals because we are very focused on the legal side, on the regulatory side, but we forget that also consumers have become a lot more sophisticated, more demanding as well. So it's important to be able to satisfy that change in consumer behavior, whether that it's a corporate or, or a retail consumer alike. Look, I, I fully agree. Uh, look, I think there's a message here, which is that um, AML CFT compliance and anti-financial crime compliance in general isn't going anywhere, right? So as a jurisdiction, we, we have successfully exited the grey listing process that entailed a very steep learning curve and a relatively quick and fast-paced change in how we did various things within the jurisdiction. I think that change has now been accomplished. What I think is that that now becomes sort of the new normal for us, right? So I, I don't expect to see any 
um, uh, you know, any any major any major change or or softening or we'll call it call it what you will post. Uh, um, post playlisting in terms of the expectations of regulators, I, I think this now becomes a new normal. We, you can see that the the driver behind this isn't just um, FATF, right, but is also these European level efforts where we're going to have not just a more harmonized approach, but we're also going to have a European level regulator, which is going to, on a consistent basis, be pushing the local regulators, the domestic regulators, towards ensuring that the standards are adhered to. So my, my message to subject persons is, look, um, AML CFT compliance and anti-financial crime compliance is, well, first of all, it's, it's done well, it's a socially useful thing, right? So we all benefit from a market where criminal funds are not allowed to flow freely. So at the end of the day, this done well, this is a, this is a social good. Now, uh, the, the second thing is, of course, it will never not be a burden, at least to some extent, right? So it's never going to be a walk in the park. It's never going to make uh, your life extraordinarily easier, right? However, if it is done well, it doesn't need to be very painful and it can be very much like the whole AML framework can be integrated within your day-to-day -day life such that it becomes second nature and it doesn't it, you know it doesn't become a very painful and or sort of a sore spot in your process and you know in our experience we we've assisted many clients across the industry spectrum in ensuring not just that they are compliant right but also in ensuring that they are compliant in a smart way. And, and so many times, so many times we deal with we deal with subject persons and you know try to understand how they're doing things. And they're they're very comfortable that they're doing things well because they have a big stack of documents, you know, this this big, uh, you know, they have a they have a, a customer file and it's it's uh, um uh, you know it's like four kilograms of customer file, you know. And 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 we look at it and we're like, this isn't very good, and they're surprised. And then we tell them, look, actually, this is what what good looks like, and it's something which is a lot more a lot more frictionless, a lot actually simpler to execute, right? But it's, it's the right thing to do. So my message to subject persons is: this isn't going away. There's 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 further drivers behind it. The best way to deal with it is to make sure you understand what you need to do and to do it in a smart and efficient to in a smart and efficient way. Definitely, and and this will this um uh, the single AML rule book and so on will definitely assist towards that because of the clarity element that it will bring um in in that respect um and um, as, as we said at the beginning that you know these are ongoing talks so we're not expecting any immediate changes uh to to the regime but it's it's also very good to be prepared for it um one of the um of the questions here that we've also received uh, is with regards to um um let's have a quick look okay okay so uh whether other players um such as insurance companies crypto will benefit of more clearer requirements insofar as aml and cft is is concerned i think the the well i'm going to stick my neck out over here and i think the answer to that is a clear yes um, now, if, if three, three, four years down the line, this doesn't pan out, uh, please don't show up at my door, you know, <laughs> but I, I, jokes apart, look, I, I think the answer, I think the answer is yes, because I think 
for what it's worth, right, um, if you are outside or sort of your status within the directors was a bit murky and now you've been clearly captured, right, you're not coming and you're not being sort of dragged into a regulatory framework which is new or immature or or, or, or anything of the sort, right? The the AML safety framework now has been around for for a number of for 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 decades. You can see when you read the draft regulations that there's a lot of maturity now in terms of thinking about about these things. Uh, it's a lot more granular than anything we've we've ever had we've ever had before. So I, I I think you're going to be brought into a regulatory framework, which which you know is is quite quite extensive, which which benefits from um, a lot of experience that has been poured into it over over the years. So I would say that overall, yes, you will enjoy um, greater greater clarity. You will enjoy. Uh, greater greater granularity go, going going on the, the the drafts as they as they stand as they stand right now thank you thank you Charles and how how will the role of the MLRO officer let's start with with the MLRO officer will look in the post single AMA regulatory world what changes can can professionals expect I think we're going to see a continuation of uh, like a phenomenon which we've been seeing for a while now, which is the increasing importance and seniority of the MLRO function. I think going back, you know, 10 years ago, um, which is not that long ago, right? I think in many instances, we would see MLROs who would either be, for example, you know, one of the, one of the partners of a firm, one of the directors of a firm who held the role among a million other roles. And it was, you know, perhaps something which wasn't really foremost on their minds or it's something which we used to see. You'd see relatively junior people holding on the MLRO position because it was maybe perceived as being a kind of administrative function, right? That has changed very dramatically. I think the MLRO is now has to be perceived as part of the senior management of the firm. And this is not just that because the rules uh, will usually say so, right? But also because it's, it's kind of impossible to run a subject person well if you don't have maturity in terms of your MLROs. And when you have MLROs who are not strong as professionals, you end up with one of two, one of two permutations. Um, uh, you, you either get an MLRO who says no to everything, right, which is very easy, but then you're out of business in a month, or else you get an MLRO who says yes to everything, which again is very easy, but then you're out of business two years later and more catastrophically. And the, the, it's very difficult and, and, and very challenging to find people who are mature MLROs who can look at risk in a, in a very pragmatic, objective, and at the same time, prudent, prudent way and make risk-sensitive decisions. And, and not only that, but also have the courage to then revise those decisions from time to time as the evidence, as the behavior of the, of the customer, of the situation evolves, right? So um, what, what I would say is we're going to we're going to continue seeing more of this. You know, the 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 this new rule book doesn't in any way, um, uh, you know, overturn the notion of what an MLRO is, right? So the, the core functions of the MLRO kind of remain the same. So that hasn't that hasn't changed. But now we are in a world where we have a very long-standing, mature rule book. We have local regulators who are a lot savvier. 
we have supranational regulators chasing after those local regulators, right? And all of that is going to conspire to require professionals who are um, very, very um, capable and, and, and mature. So I think what organizations need to make sure of is that either they have this, these capabilities in-house or they are or they are supported because the MLRO is going to be you know, a core part of your C-suite in a way, or a core part of your, you know, decision-making process in the way that your chief financial officer is or your chief commercial officer, you know, it's, it's another core part of the process. So I, I think that's the main, that's like my first observation at least. I completely agree with you, Charles. It will definitely not, um, you know, bring any significant changes to to the function in, in in itself, or to to the PQ process, for example. And this was one one of the questions here in in the chat with regards to the PQ, but it will definitely enhance the role of the MLRO within the function of a business, um, from a decision making perspective as well as from a continuous development perspective. I mean, as a headhunter specializing in one of these areas, compliance and AML, um, I, if I would have, you know, a penny for every time people said, you know, where can we find compliance AML, but I would be, you know, significantly um, wealthy. And it has been a challenge, not only locally, but also across the EU to um, recruit and retain such professionals. And one of the challenges that have been identified in firms that do require specialist AML um, and, um, and compliance individuals is that many a times um, we sort of take a reactive stance, which means you know, regulations come through and then we see what we're going to do. So that puts a lot of pressure on the firm. This is where the costing tend to increase as well. And this is where, Charles, you probably get a lot of calls at 12 o'clock at night telling you, you know, we, we need your help now. Um, whereas if we are a lot more proactive, um, we can reduce, let's say, the friction um, of, of immediate demand, which which reflects into the MLROs role. So succession planning and professional development are important areas, but it's still very much not. I wouldn't say that very uniform at this level either. Okay, we have you know a lot of different institutes. You know, you have the diplomas in anti-money laundering, and we were you we were talking about seniority, but how can this be continuously sustained as well? I think that's. Very good, very good question. And uh, I don't think anyone has a perfect answer to this, right? Look, one good thing is I think nowadays there's, there's, there's plenty of training, there's plenty of training out there, right? So in terms of, in terms of I, I think getting formal education, which is, which is useful, which is important and the regulators will expect it. I, I think there are, you know, various options um, available nowadays, even, even here locally. Um, but I think the, the difficulty is that at the, at the end of the day, you cannot educate someone into being a, a, a good MLRO um, simply through academic processes. You have to, you have, you know, someone has to be made and has, or has to make themselves into a good into a good MLRO, and it requires a, a pretty a pretty particular set of skills, right? Because you need ideally you need someone who has both an in-depth knowledge of financial crime per se, right? That's, that ought to be a given, right? So that, that's obviously important. 
Um, apart from that, you also need someone who has um, a, a good understanding of the business areas in which they are operating in, useless knowing all of the academia about financial crime, if then you don't understand the business models that you are, that you are, that you are supporting, right? Thirdly, you need uh, a good governance structure within which the MLRO can operate. Even the most capable MLRO on the planet will not be effective if everything they propose can be simply shut down by sort of a, a very strong-willed uh, chief executive officer or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. You need a good governance structure within which the MLRO can, 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 function, can function properly. And finally, you need MLROs who have the experience and, and, uh, and personality and intellectual capability to fulfill the role to fulfill the role properly, which, which, effectively, which effectively means you need people who understand that no business is entirely zero risk, right? Uh, and who at the same time are very, very um, um, keen to safeguard the institution um, that they are actually working for and who can, who can, who can let's say, analyze risk in a, in a, in a, sound, uh, in a sound way and understands which, which risks can be taken on sustainably and which risks simply cannot be taken on and then have the strength of character of pushing that point, pushing that point across, you know? So, you know, you, you need someone who is uh, um, uh, quite strong in a number of areas for them to be an effective, an effective MLR. And it's just, it's just the case that that set of, of capabilities is not very easy to come by. We, we see this in our practice a lot. Like many of our customers are actually organizations that do have compliance teams and that do know what AML is. And, you know, and they're no spring chickens. They've been around for a while and, and they, they, you know, they know what, what it entails to run a compliance department. However, they often find that they're, they're lacking, um, you know, they might have a good team, but they're lacking seniority. Or is they have a good manager, and, uh, but this manager is supported by a relatively junior team and needs uh, senior level support, even just you know someone to bounce ideas off. That's that's a big chunk of what we that's a big chunk of what we do because there is now a very big need for AML CFT uh, expertise, and we're still in the process of uh, building up that capacity within the jurisdiction. Definitely. Um, and especially when it comes to the corporate governance structures, as you rightly pointed, this is something that comes a lot from a um, cultural dynamics perspective within the firm to ensure that the, um, you know, for a better word, the structural integrity of the, of the business, of the operations, of the procedures is solid so that, that the MLRO can operate effectively, ultimately. Because if there is, is chaos, or like you said, the, sorry, the, the senior management um, that is um, um, outside of the compliance CFT sphere interferes in the decision-making process, um, then of course the, the whole scope of it, apart from being, you know, quite <laughs> against the regulations, it's not a good idea to do that. It defeats the whole purpose to have um, an individual at senior level to perform that function um, in in itself, you know, from a from a professional point of view. Um, and we, we've. We've, we've touched upon the MLRO and, you know, there has been very good guidance in the market with regards to the role of the MLRO, especially, I think it was a couple of months back um, that it was addressed both in the financial services as well as the iGaming context, particularly from a personal liability perspective. 
But one of the areas that is kind of left out, which I think is important in the overall context of, of change of, um, of the um, single rule book, is the function of regulatory compliance officers you know, versus leaders. Yeah. There's, <laughs> yes. there's, uh, there's always a, a contention yes, point yes. there, and it, it's um, yes, very, Mikhail, very unclear. Yes. Very, good, very good question. We, we get asked this question all the time. So let's be clear. The single rule book is, um, you know, this is for AML CFT, right? And the, the, from an AML CFT perspective, the, the key officer of the company, you know, other than the members of the board, is the, is the MNRO. Now, AML CFT, although it has tended to, you know, uh, capture the imagination and grab all of the headlines over the last couple of years locally, it's not the be all and end all of regulation. So any bank, any corporate service provider, any, any regulatory and regulated entity will have a whole other host of rules to contend with. And, and each one of these could be a field of expertise in, in, its, own, in its own right, right? So, so that is where the, the compliance officer within most jurisdictions comes in. These, these rules will tend to be, you know, conduct of business related or, you know, related to how we treat customers in a, in a fair manner, how we, deal with, how we deal with complaints, how we deal with a host of other things which could be subject to regulation. And, and that or is soft the, law. Well, I mean, some of it maybe you could call it soft law. Some of it can actually be fairly, fairly hard and precise. Like in the investment services world, there are very specific ways of how you can uh, promote an investment or sell an investment to a customer. And these are, you know, fields of law which are just as sophisticated and granular and detailed as the AML CFT framework. So that is where the compliance officer tends to tends to come in. What we are, what we have seen, and what we are seeing is that as the the as the different rule books become more and more sophisticated, and as an organization grows larger and larger, it becomes more and more difficult to combine these two functions, combine the MLRO and combine the compliance officer. Within smaller organizations, it's relatively commonplace and generally acceptable to regulators to combine these functions. But as an organization grows, grows large enough, right? It, it becomes very hard to sustain. Like if you're a small payment services provider, you might be able to do it, for example, but that's probably the borderline. Like if you're a large payment services provider or you're, you're a bank, probably of any scale, uh, it's going to become unsustainable very, very quickly. If you're a corporate services provider, you can probably combine the two just because the non-AML CFT component of regulation isn't that huge, right? But for many other for many other fields, it, it's going to be impossible to combine the two roles in, in one person as you achieve as you achieve scale. Absolutely. And do, do you think that there will be the possibility of appointing sort of designated employees without going through through the PQ or that that won't be affected? in the market, um, that's one, one of the questions. One second. Off the top of my head, I'm not even sure you need a PQ for a designated employee as, 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 as of right now, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't put my hand in the fire over there, but I, I think you don't need it. I'm not entirely sure though, sorry. 
at, at the moment is on on the functions of the MLRO, for example, you know, and then the, the chief compliance officer and so on. But um, the person that asked the question, if you could perhaps, you know, clarify a bit more, maybe if we have time later, we can we can come back to it uh, to see. I, I, I don't understood. need to appoint a designated employee. You need an MFSC yes. permission. I think you need to yes, it's, it's, enroll it's them with the FIAU. But I don't think the designated employee being like sort of the deputy or the, the delegate of the, the MLO. Exactly, exactly. The they don't need the PQ. It's on the, on the other end of, of the spectrum unless, uh, um, you know, the question can be to make sure I understood the question correctly. If, uh, if we didn't, just, you know, retype and we will come, we will come back to it. Um, and... And one of the other questions is with regards to expectations from the um, authorities point of view, such as the MFSA is mentioned here, FIU, MBR, et cetera. Um, some uh, individuals feel that these authorities have different expectations from yes. CSPs. And it became very confusing for MLROs with regards to what documentation they should obtain from their clients both during the onboarding stage, as long as in, in terms of the ongoing relationship and maintaining the, the relationship stage. Yes, look, this is, this is a very good observation. And if, if you are finding certain things a bit confusing, I can, you know, just sort of sleep easy at night, you're not losing your mind. It, it, is, it is because certain things are indeed confusing. And this is, this is by virtue of the fact primarily that we have we had an AML4 directive, right, which stipulates a number of things, and among them we have um, beneficial ownership transparency rules. Now, the implementation and supervision of beneficial ownership transparency rules has largely fallen to the Malta Business Registry, the MBR, while the rest of the rulebook is largely within the responsibility of the FIU. Having said that, it's not that the FIU takes zero interest in the identification of beneficial owner, owners, etc. It's still one of the core things which they are interested in. So now we have two regulators who are kind of looking at, at some of the same things. The MBR historically hasn't been, has been more mechanical as a regulator. Now it's changed a lot, it's become a lot more qualitative as a regulator, right? They're much more interested in the substance of things. They have a very active compliance department. So this is a massive, massive change. And, and uh, we are seeing, you know, that some, I won't go into detail, but sometimes you see diverging interpret interpretations of the same thing between one regulator and the other. What I can say is that at least on the part of shoulder compliance, we are in dialogue with both the FIU as well as with the MBR. We have been encouraging them to have more dialogue. I know that they do have dialogue, so it's not that they're not making an effort to align, but I do personally think that more can be more can be done. And there's like, you know, half a dozen or so pain points where if, if we get a bit more cohesion, we would benefit. Again, hopefully having a single regular, a single rule book will help to iron out some of those things and having regulations as opposed to directives will help to iron out some of those things. But then again, the single rule book is two, three years away and we, we really shouldn't wait that long as a jurisdiction to iron out some of the internal confusions that have, that have arisen. I know that there's work taking place on, on these issues, uh, I don't, but I don't know the timelines for it. Fair enough, fair enough, Charles. Um, and, and thank you for that. And I think everyone is in a sentiment when we say that we need to look forward and, and preempt any, any potential um, um, 
misunderstandings or, or lack of clarifications and so on and so forth to, to, to prepare us, both in the current shape and form, as you said, nothing is going to change immediately, sort of tomorrow we're not going to end up, you know, fit first into a new uh, AMLCFC world, but... And I, I think we've got a clarification on the other question, basically. Have uh, we? Okay. okay. So, so, all right, so I think this is, all right, so what I think the, the clarification is this, so... Um, yes, a PQ is not required for, for an MLRO delegate, but some managers view this as a way to short circuit MLROs they see as being too strict, right? So maybe you appoint an MLRO delegate, right? Uh, and the MLRO delegate will, well, I mean, look, um, to be honest, if, if some people are going down the road and they are doing that, I think they're just asking for trouble, to be honest. The, the all of the legislative, all of the powers appointed, granted by statute to the MLRO pertain to the MLRO by, by, virtue, by virtue of their office. And if an MLRO resigns because they feel that they are being undermined, remember they are actually required to notify the regulator to flag if there were you know, regulatory issues of, of this type, right? You can rest assured that if your MLRO resigns because of concerns of this type and they flag it, that will definitely land somewhere near the top of the pile of the MFS of the FIU, probably the MFSA as well, and that will almost certainly lead to regulatory regulatory repercussions. The, the right way to do the, to do this is there needs to be good governance, there needs to be a good culture, there needs to be a good fit. The MLRO and the executives need to have good dialogue between them, and if they they're not comfortable with how they work, and this can happen even without any financial crime risk, right? because people have different personalities and ambitions, and there can always be personal differences. The right way to do this is to simply part ways amicably and not to try to circumvent and short circuit the MLRO, which will surely land the subject person in trouble. So I understand why it might happen. I think it's just a very bad idea. Absolutely, absolutely, definitely. Um, I hope I hope that answered the question. Thank you for clarifying and and thank you for for you know um, answering this charge and and highlighting the the importance of, of corporate governance and 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 professional conduits as well. I think that's that's really really um, that's really critical. Um, I think we've got time for one more question. Um, so essentially. Uh, it refers that the, um, the at the moment uh, the FIU allows for the appointment of a separate officer to the MLRO to um, you know let's say monitor the day-to-day -day application of measures policies and ensures that the, the uh, AMLCFT obligations are adhered to. On the other hand, the EU legislation does not seem to draw this particular distinction. I, I don't think there's going to be any issue with that distinction um, going forward. So I, I think that the, the 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 definition of the role of the MLRO hasn't isn't going to change in any meaningful in any major way, at least according to the current draft, right? So sort of the MLRO's core role remains like let's say uh, overall oversight of the program and most importantly the, the identification and reporting of suspicious transactions. It is, it is only natural that, especially with larger organizations, there may be people who are tasked with the supervision of the implementation of this program. It's a model which is quite in widespread use within, within large organizations. 
I don't think there's going to be any 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 major change or or objection to that. There was also, if, if you don't mind, I think there was a question which I think was quite interesting, which we might have missed, Fran, which, which related one? to which related to um, the impact on like the treatment of third countries and jurisdiction risk assessments. Um, um, uh, let me find it. Yes. Okay. So I found it with regards to jurisdictional risk assessments. So, what do you anticipate would be the impact of the single rule book in the jurisdiction in the jurisdiction risk assessment that are currently used by subject person or entities? I, I thought this was quite. A, I think it's actually quite a, a, a useful question to pick up on, just because it allows us to bring up another element of the of the single rule book, which I haven't really spoken about, which is um, how we deal with high risk jurisdictions, right? So, so what is actually quite interesting is that the, you know, by now in Malta, everyone is, is, is familiar with the famous Financial Action Task Force, the FATF, which issues the so-called gray listing, right? Now, what we're going to see, which is, uh, I think, an important and useful change, is that the, the FATF is going to be given standing directly within the, within the rule book. And if, if an entity is, is graylisted or blacklisted by the FATF, um, that is recognized directly within the rule book as being you know, uh, a good enough rationale in order to subject uh, uh, entities related to the jurisdiction to enhance due diligence. We're kind of there already in a sort of roundabout way because the, the, the rules will, will kind of nudge you towards uh, you know, dealing on the basis of EDD with any entity which is gray listed or gray or blacklisted by the um, uh, by by the FATF, right? But now the European authorities are effectively absorbing the FATF's pronouncements into their their legislative process, and uh, and, and and I think that's that's helpful, right? I think that's helpful. It's not going to be the case that um, the commission is going to abandon its ability to designate other countries as being high risk. So, the, the, so Europe is going to retain that ability, but it's going to be over and above whatever comes out from the, from the FATF, which will again help to reduce a little bit of the fragmentation that, that, that we see and hopefully make jurisdiction risk assessments a bit more consistent. We're not going to have a, a, a removal of the requirement to perform jurisdiction risk assessment, right? So we will still have some firms which look at, at you know, some jurisdictions in a certain way and look at others in a different way. That's not going to go away, right? However, however, we do get a helpful nudge. Thank you, Charles. And thank you, everyone, for, for, for the questions that you said. They have been certainly incredibly interesting uh we're up to sort of to one hour more more or less um and um we've kind of reached reach, reach the end i'm sure we could be debating and talking about this for many many hours to to come um and i'm sure there will be opportunities to continue to to explore this subject further especially as as it continues to to be drafted at an eu level so thank you charles very much for for your thoughts and now i will pass the floor over to ivan for the closing remarks and thank you everyone for for joining us and sharing your afternoon with us today thank you thanks thanks Thank you very much. Thank you, Fran and Charles, for this very, very insightful and interesting discussion that we had. You've provided much food for thought uh, to all of us with regards to the challenges and, and opportunities facing compliance and, and MLROs. So thank you. Thank you very much in that respect.
And yes, I think we could have gone on for another hour, actually, and it's, it's, it's never enough. I also thank all the participants for, for joining us this afternoon. And you know, I'd like to, to remind everyone about the, uh, the forthcoming 15th uh, Finance Malt Annual Conference, which will be held uh, between the 13th November and the 1st of December in physical format, finally, from, from uh, 2019. Um, so you know, stay tuned for more information in, in that regard. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, all the social media channels, and including our, our website as well. So thank you once again, Fran and Charles, and I wish everybody um, a pleasant rest of the afternoon. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, everyone. Goodbye.